You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode number 222 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As we promised at the end of the last episode, now that we've finished with the Battle of Corinth, with this show, we're heading west from northern Mississippi back across the Mississippi River to my home state of Arkansas. Yep. Uh, it's been a while since we were there on the podcast. But we are going to turn our attention back to the war in the Trans-Mississippi, because next up on the podcast timeline is the Battle of Prairie Grove, which took place just a stone's throw from Tracy's hometown of Fayetteville. Oh, and remember, Trans-Mississippi is just the term used to refer to the region west of the Mississippi River, including Kansas, the Indian Territory, Missouri, part of Louisiana, Texas, and, of course, Arkansas. And although it's been a while since we've been there on the podcast, I was back home to Arkansas last month, and while I was there, my dad and I visited the Prairie Grove Battlefield State Park. Some of you may remember seeing a photo of me at the battlefield that we posted on Facebook and Twitter last month. So, we've been looking forward to covering the battle, and Tracy's dad has been pretty interested in when we're going to get to it. Well, not only is it not far from Tracy's hometown, but Prairie Grove was an important turning point in the war in the Trans-Mississippi, since when the two armies collided at Prairie Grove on December 7, 1862, it effectively ended major Confederate offensive operations west of the Mississippi River for the rest of the Civil War. And the personalities of the commanders at Prairie Grove are kind of fascinating. One army was led by Thomas Hindman, a zealous secessionist who had single-handedly revived the Confederate war effort in the Trans-Mississippi. The other army was headed by James Blunt, a brash Kansas abolitionist who liked nothing better than personally leading his troops into battle, pistol in hand. Well, as we'll see, the bloody day-long struggle at Prairie Grove ended in a tactical draw, but it was a key strategic victory for the Federals, since the Confederates never again seriously attempted to recover Missouri or threaten Kansas. As 
As y'all probably remember, after the Union victory at Pea Ridge in northwest Arkansas in March 1862, Confederate General Earl Van Dorn was ordered to take his army east, across the Mississippi River, to join the rebel forces concentrating at Corinth prior to the Battle of Shiloh. But when Van Dorn and his troops left Arkansas and headed east, Confederate political leaders in the Trans-Mississippi were outraged at being abandoned. The governor of Arkansas even threatened to secede if the situation wasn't remedied. In response to the uproar that Van Dorn's departure stirred up, the Confederate War Department dispatched 34-year-old Major General Thomas C. Hindman to calm the political waters and stabilize the military situation. Hindman was an interesting character. He'd been born in Tennessee in 1828, but when he was a young boy, his family moved to Alabama. In 1841, the Hindmans moved again, this time to Mississippi, and Thomas served with conspicuous gallantry in the war with Mexico as a lieutenant in the 2nd Mississippi Infantry. He studied law upon his return from Mexico and was admitted to the Mississippi Bar in 1851. Hyman was elected to a term in the Mississippi State House as a Democrat, but then in 1856 he moved to Helena, Arkansas, where he practiced law. After moving to Helena, Hindman was still active in Democratic politics, and he was elected to two terms in the U.S. House of Representatives from Arkansas in 1858 and 1860. During the headstrong Hindman's time in Washington, Ohio Congressman Samuel Cox noted that he was, quote, an irreconcilable man who seemed as if he were perpetually anxious to have a duel. A friend of Hindman's, Thomas Nash, admitted he was, quote, uncompromising in everything. Thomas Hindman chose not to go to Washington for his second term in Congress. With secession from the Union becoming more and more of a possibility, Hindman, an unapologetic fire-eater, decided to instead stay home and focus on the military preparedness of his adopted state. He led recruitment of the 2nd Arkansas Infantry, becoming the regiment's colonel. In September 1861, he was promoted to Brigadier General. At the Battle of Shiloh in April 1862, he commanded a brigade and was slightly wounded during the fighting. Promoted to Major General for his service at Shiloh, Hindman was sent back to Arkansas to command the newly created Trans-Mississippi Department, with the expectation that he would, as we said before, calm the political waters and stabilize the military situation. Not to put too fine a point on it, but Hindman was to clean up the mess that Van Dorn had left behind when Van Dorn had pulled out of Arkansas. When Hindman reached Little Rock, the Arkansas state capital, in late May 1862, he found no troops and little in the way of military material. He reported, quote, I found here almost nothing. Nearly everything of value was taken away by General Van Dorn. Hindman realized that he would have to start from scratch if he was to restore Confederate military fortunes in the Trans-Mississippi. Wading right into the difficult task before him, Hindman, from his headquarters in Little Rock, declared martial law and, using any and all means, legal, extra-legal, and illegal, he began acquiring arms, supplies, and equipment. To form the nucleus of a new army, 
he secured the return of a brigade of Missouri troops from Mississippi, ordered all white troops stationed in the Indian Territory to move to Arkansas, and commandeered all Texas units passing through Arkansas headed east. He also made liberal use of the recently enacted and highly unpopular Confederate Conscription Act, using it to draft nearly every able-bodied male he could lay his hands on in Arkansas. He also sent recruiting parties behind enemy lines up into Missouri, believing that many Southern sympathizing men in that border state would join the Confederate Army if given the chance. Hindman's extreme measures worked, and in less than three months, he had performed something of a miracle. He'd created the beginnings of a new rebel army and fashioned a rudimentary logistical base in the least populous and least developed part of the Confederacy. His heavy-handedness, though, had come at a price, producing hardship and discontent through all levels of Arkansas society. And it didn't take long before a word of this grumbling and unhappiness with Hindman made its way east to Virginia, to the ears of Confederate leaders in Richmond. Meanwhile, as Hyman was building his army and gathering supplies and equipment, Union Major General Samuel Curtis, the victor of the Battle of Pea Ridge, marched on Little Rock. Curtis was foiled in this attempt, though, by supply problems that proved to be more difficult to overcome than any Confederate opposition, and he ended up marching east to Helena on the Mississippi River. After arriving there in mid-July, he appropriated Hyman's fine home as his headquarters. Curtis began building defensive works at Helena, hoping to rest and refit his army there until the following spring, when he planned to make another try at capturing Little Rock. In the meantime, complaints of Hindman's heavy-handedness had reached Richmond, and Confederate President Jefferson Davis decided a less rigid personality was needed to command the Trans-Mississippi. However, Davis could hardly have made a worse decision in his choice of who to send west to supersede Hindman. Fifty-eight years old, nearly deaf, and known to his troops as Granny, Lieutenant General Theophilus Holmes was a cast-off from the Confederate Army in Virginia. He'd been shuffled aside by Robert E. Lee, after Holmes had not performed up to Lee's expectations during the Seven Days' Battles. Despite his less-than-stellar record so far in the war and Holmes' own efforts to decline the assignment, Jefferson Davis, for some inexplicable reason, gave him what was arguably the most complex and demanding departmental command in the Confederacy. Holmes reached Little Rock in August and quickly realized that Heinemann was a subordinate of extraordinary ability and energy. Holmes left most of Heinemann's policies in place, but enforced them less vigorously. Holmes also allowed Heinemann to continue in field command of the force he was building in western Arkansas, and with some reservations, supported Heinemann's plan to strike up into southwest Missouri. At Fort Smith in western Arkansas, Heinemann had been making some progress in training and equipping new recruits and unwilling conscripts. But that progress was slow, with military material in short supply. 
Nevertheless, Heinemann believed that the Trans-Mississippi Department would be best defended by an aggressive offensive into Missouri. Encouraged by his perceived success in turning Curtis away from Little Rock, Hindman convinced Holmes to allow him to take the offensive. Hindman decided to march at once, despite the fact that only a fraction of the Trans-Mississippi Army was ready to take the field. And just a side note, but officially, Hindman's force was designated the First Corps of the Army of the Trans-Mississippi, but we'll just be referring to it as Hindman's Army or the Trans-Mississippi Army. Yep. Oh, anyway, in early September, Hindman started north from Fort Smith at the head of a rather motley force composed mostly of cavalry. The Confederates pushed into Missouri and raised havoc in the southwest part of the state. Everything was going as planned until Holmes called Hindman back to Little Rock to advise him on administrative matters. After that, without Hindman's strong hand on the tiller, the rebel offensive lost direction and momentum. The Confederate movement, however, had stirred up a hornet's nest. After overcoming his initial panic, Brigadier General John Schofield, the Union commander in Missouri, pulled himself together and set out to regain control of the situation. At Schofield's request, Brigadier General James Blunt, commanding next door in Kansas, crossed into Missouri to provide support. Meanwhile, Samuel Curtis hurriedly journeyed up the Mississippi River from Helena to St. Louis to assume overall command of the Department of Missouri. Curtis promptly incorporated all federal troops in southwest Missouri into a new force, called it the Army of the Frontier, and designated Schofield to command it. The army consisted of three divisions. Blunt led the first, Brigadier General James Totten the second, and Brigadier General Francis Heron the third. Because Blunt's oversized first division originated in Kansas, Everyone called it the Kansas Division. Likewise, the smaller 2nd and 3rd Divisions were known collectively as the Missouri Divisions. After a stiff fight at Newtonia on September 30th, which the rebels won, they took the opportunity to fall back into northwest Arkansas. Much to the Confederates' surprise, Schofield followed. By the time Heinemann convinced Holmes to allow him to return to the field, it was too late to retrieve the situation. The Confederates simply lacked the strength to deal with the larger and better equipped Union Army. Hindman traded jabs with Schofield throughout October, but then was forced to admit the Yankees had gained the upper hand, and he withdrew south across the Boston Mountains back to Fort Smith. And so, much to his frustration, Hindman was essentially right back where he'd started two months earlier. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Samuel Curtis had rushed to St. Louis to take command of the Department of Missouri, he promptly halted the movement of federal troops out of Missouri, much to General-in-Chief Henry Halleck's displeasure. You see, previously Halleck had been moving large numbers of Union troops out of Missouri to reinforce other federal armies east of the Mississippi River, especially Ulysses S. Grant's command. Heinemann had watched the steady drain on Union manpower, and it was one reason he had felt confident in striking up into Missouri. But now, with the Confederates having withdrawn back to Arkansas, Curtis was under mounting pressure from Halleck to resume the transfer of troops east from Missouri. Curtis, however, refused to further weaken his department until he was certain that Schofield had matters well in hand. In early November, though, Schofield reported that the rebels had gone into winter quarters south of the Boston Mountains, in the Arkansas Valley, and around Fort Smith. With hindmen out of reach behind the protective barrier of the mountains, and winter about to set in, the campaign seemed to be over. The Missouri divisions, therefore, withdrew back into their namesake state to rest and refit at and around Springfield. The Kansas Division, however, remained in northwest Arkansas, since Curtis and Schofield agreed that Blunt should stay and keep an eye on Heinemann. 36-year-old James Blunt was originally from Maine. He went to sea at the age of 15 and five years later had risen to captain on a merchant ship. Eventually, though, Blunt left the sea and moved to Columbus, Ohio, where he earned a degree from Starling Medical College in 1849. He set up a medical practice in Ohio before moving west and settling in Kansas in 1856. There, Blunt, an ardent abolitionist, became active in politics. Blunt's military career began as a Jayhawker, commanding cavalry in Senator James H. Lane's Kansas Brigade. Blunt was commissioned a lieutenant colonel in the 3rd Kansas Infantry in July 1861. After promotion to Brigadier General in April 1862, Blunt headed the Department of Kansas from May to September 1862 when his command was folded into the Department of Missouri. Blunt was definitely an amateur amateur soldier. He often wore a business suit instead of a uniform, drank too much, and had other personal shortcomings. But he was a bold, resolute, and fearless commander 
who liked nothing better than personally leading his soldiers into battle. His lack of pretense and love of action made him immensely popular with his men. When the Missouri divisions withdrew from Arkansas, leaving behind his Kansas division to keep an eye on Hindman, Blunt relished the chance to operate independently, but naturally aggressive, he was annoyed at the defensive nature of his assignment. Nonetheless, for the next few weeks, he dutifully followed Schofield's instructions to remain alert and avoid taking unnecessary risks. In mid-November, the Kansas division was camped along Flint Creek, a short distance north of present-day Siloam Springs in northwest Arkansas. Sixty-five miles to the south in the Arkansas Valley, Thomas Hindman labored tirelessly to prepare his command for another round of offensive operations, but his efforts were hampered by a crippling shortage of food and fodder. You see, the summer had been exceptionally dry, and the fall harvest was the poorest in years. The scarcity of food around Fort Smith was compounded by low water on the Arkansas River, which made it difficult to bring in supplies from other areas. While his hungry men and animals scraped by as best they could, Hindman learned that a fertile spot called Cane Hill had escaped the worst effects of the drought. Unfortunately for the Confederates, this land of plenty was located on the north side of the Boston Mountains, 35 rough and rocky miles from Fort Smith, but only 30 miles from Blunt's camp on Flint Creek. Despite the risk involved, Hyman resolved to gather the bountiful harvest at Cane Hill before it fell into enemy hands. On November 9th, he ordered Brigadier General John S. Marmaduke to take the Trans-Mississippi Army's Cavalry Division across the mountains and bring back all the food and fodder he could carry. Marmaduke's Missouri and Arkansas troopers occupied Cane Hill for five days and filled a large number of commissary wagons with smoked meat, flour, meal, and hay. They returned to the Arkansas Valley without incident and received a hero's welcome from their famished comrades. Hindman was emboldened by Marmaduke's success and Blunt's inaction. A week later, he directed Marmaduke to return to Cane Hill and stage a repeat performance. During Marmaduke's first visit to Cane Hill, the sudden appearance of a rebel cavalry division north of the Boston Mountains had discombobulated James Blunt. He concluded, a bit too hastily, that Hindman was making another attempt to strike up into Missouri. In accordance with Schofield's expressed desire that he not do anything rash, Blunt placed his 6,000 troops in defensive positions along Flint Creek and waited impatiently for the enemy to arrive. The expected rebel offensive failed to materialize, though, and Marmaduke mysteriously withdrew back across the mountains a few days later. Blunt was furious with himself for adopting a passive, defensive stance and allowing Marmaduke to slip away scot-free. He vowed that next time the rebels made an appearance on his side of the mountains, he would follow his instincts and attack at once. Major Albert Ellathorpe of the 1st Indian Home Guard, one of three Indian regiments in the Kansas Division, noted that, quote, General Blunt is determined to fight. It makes no difference with their forces. 
Blunt was still fuming a week later when Union scouts hurried into camp with word that Marmaduke had returned to Cane Hill. This time, Blunt didn't hesitate. He later said, I determined to strike Marmaduke and destroy him before reinforcements arrived. And that's where we'll leave things for now. Next week, we'll look at the extraordinary 12-mile running engagement between Blunt's Federals and Marmaduke's Confederates at Cane Hill, which is a fascinating little fight in its own right, but is important to us here because it's the essential prelude to the Battle of Prairie Grove. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Fields of Blood, The Prairie Grove Campaign by William L. Shea. Shea's Fields of Blood is not only the best book out there about Prairie Grove, but it's also one of the finest, most well-written Civil War campaign narratives that we've ever come across in all of our reading and research. And we can't give it much higher praise than that, so there you go. Don't forget that you can find a complete list of all our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Discombobulated is a fun word. Yes, it is. Did it discombobulate you when I just said that? No, I think I'm okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, so what are we doing next? Oh, yep. Yeah, uh, thanking the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade. Well, just yesterday, we released members episode number 64 on the first Battle of Gettysburg, which took place in December 1836. What's that you say, dear listener? You didn't know there was a battle at the quiet little town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, back in December 1836? Well, we may be playing fast and loose with the term battle in order to arouse your curiosity, but there were some fisticuffs and dead cats thrown at people's heads during a clash between abolitionists and a pro-slavery mob. And in this latest members episode, we look at what was behind that incident. And Elena, Nico, and Paul can listen to that show since just this past week they signed up to join the ranks of the Strawfit Brigade. Thanks, y'all. And thanks, as always, to each and every one of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we look at the Battle of Cane Hill. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.